it's good to see everyone today. And if you're joining us online, please go ahead you know, and hit the like and subscribe button. And you can take it to the next level as well. You can comment. And by commenting, you might win the chance to get a five-minute Zoom call with Jesus. I'll see if I can set it up for you. So just you know, take advantage of that. So we're starting Nehemiah today, Return to God, a journey with Nehemiah, going through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And in, this, in these events, the events of Nehemiah's life, we're going to see ourselves. We're going to see our church, and we're going to see our city as well. During Nehemiah's day, this was God's people, the, the Israelites. This was about the, this is in the 5th century B.C. They were hopeless. They were exhausted. They were terrified. They were in exile. And there was, there was no good side of the bed. This wasn't a bad side of the bed situation or wrong side of the bed situation. This was, there's no good side of the bed situation for them. They felt tiny compared to the great Persian empire that had dominated them and conquered them and exiled them and was ruling over them. But also, not only were they under oppression and being in exile, but they also themselves were, they'd abandoned God's word. They were engaging in pagan rituals and practices. They were crushed by their own sin, and they had massive political and cultural pressure on them. Through the story of Nehemiah, we see God raising up this, this leader at this time to restore hope to his people. And this hero of faith, this great hero of faith, Nehemiah, had his own weaknesses, had his own problems, but he faced massive obstacles with great faith and great courage. And he led God's people through one of the most impossible times in biblical history. It was bleak, extremely bleak. They had no hope. They lost their way. They were wayward and fallen away from God. And we see in this situation, we see, we're going to see ourselves, our time, and our city coming through on these pages. Before I read to you from Nehemiah, it will come up on the screen, but uh, we have free Bibles as well in, in the lobby. Before I read this passage, let me give, make sure I give broader context, because if you're not familiar with the overarching story of the Bible, uh, you can get a little lost sometimes. Um, but essentially, the Bible tells us about God, tells us that God made everything, that God is a God of love, and that out of God's desire to share his love, he made people, because he wants to share his love with us. He doesn't want to keep it all to himself, and that's kind of now the age old thing is that you, you share what you love, which is why I think smartphones were made, right? It's to share pictures of food. But the gods, the people that God made, we, the autonomy he gave us, we, it was exploited and we, we, we fell from grace. And ever since creation's been torn in two, we've been rampaged with sin and with destruction, with evil. And, but in God's mercy and in his grace, he has a salvation plan. He has a plan to restore this torn relationship and this torn creation with himself. And God called many people into this plan. That's the story. That's what the Bible is all about. Many people being called into this plan of salvation that God has. One big person that was called very early on in the Bible, one of the big names, is a guy called Abraham. Abraham, the kind of father of faith, as it were, man of great faith who trusted and obeyed God. And Abraham was promised that through his descendants, basically, God would bring salvation to the world. This was God's, God's great plan. And we see the descendants of Abraham they're then being rescued from slavery in Egypt, being called out and called into a new land, 
They had to drive out evil nations, deal with the, the, some of the worst evil that was happening on the planet. They had to drive out evil nations. They had to establish their own nation, a nation that was for God's purposes, that was to shine a light to all other nations. This is God's plan of bringing heaven on earth. And at the height, of their, the height of their kingdom, what we see happening is we see during the reign of David and then even David's son Solomon, we see that they actually had achieved great prosperity, great peace. They were safe and secure. They were achieving and attaining the righteous and just kingdom that God wanted to create. But ultimately, they failed. And they failed and they fell hard. They perpetuated injustice. They started worshiping false gods. They, they rejected God's word and God's ways. And as a result of that, God punished them. And for God to punish a whole nation, things have to be pretty bad. They have to be pretty bad for God to take such radical action. So God sent the Babylonians. He sent the Persians to conquer his own people, Israel, and to exile them, to bring them out of the place that they'd been in, and to break them, essentially. To, it, was, it was necessary to interrupt the great evil that they were perpetuating on the earth. It was like a massive intervention. But God, in his grace, he allowed a remnant to stay in Jerusalem. A small amount of people were survivors, and they stayed there. Everyone else was carted off, and they were in exile for 70 years. Seven, zero. That's why they had no hope. They thought, is this ever going to turn around? Is this ever going to change? And at the end of 70 years, a guy called Ezra, he was a, a scribe and a priest, and he returned to Jerusalem, and he rebuilt the temple and rebooted the worship of the God of the Bible, restored Israel to actually worshiping God. And then that brings us up 13 years after that, that brings us to the story of Nehemiah. What we see in Nehemiah is we hear reports that now Jerusalem, the gates have now recently been burned and the wall again has been demolished. They're still, it's still in disrepair from the original conquering, from the Babylonians and the Persians. It's still in disrepair from that, but there's a more recent attack where the gates have been burned and the wall's been broken down and now this remnant is vulnerable and powerless and in great danger. That's where we pick up the story of Nehemiah. Let's pray, and then let's read. Jesus, we need your help today to understand your word. Help us to find ourselves and our church and our city and our context in this story, in these events, that we might respond like Nehemiah responds. Thank you, God, that you do what you do best, that you spoke. When there seemed like there was no hope, you spoke. And Nehemiah listened and responded. Help us to listen, and to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. 
the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes and the rules and the commandments, sorry, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. As we continue through this, we'll learn, as we're seeing here already, that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. And what we see is, we see this remnant, this small group of people who have survived the exile. God's People, the descendants of Abraham, they're supposed to be the hope of the world, supposed to be all this work, all this salvation that God's supposed to be bringing to people, and there's only a few of them left, and now they're in danger of being wiped out. They have no fortification, they're vulnerable, they're hopeless. This matters because, in big picture, because the work and the character of God is being undermined. Throughout all the ages, all the centuries, all the work that God had been doing through His people to get his people to this point, it's all being threatened and being undermined. The stakes could not be higher, could they? The stakes could not be higher because through the descendants of Abraham, it's been prophesied there's supposed to be a Messiah. Now for us looking back, we know that's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who's going to die for the sins of the world. Now Nehemiah and those at that, this time couldn't have quite looked forward and figured all that out. People were searching for that. They had a clue, clues about that, but they couldn't quite see it all clearly. For us, we look back and we can see it clearly. It's been revealed to us. And so could the stakes be any higher? That this remnant must survive. They absolutely must survive so that the Savior of the world can be born to bear our sin, to fulfill all the promises and all the works of God in history. We, see, we read it in verse 4. Verse 4. He says, As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Nehemiah has this overwhelming reaction to this news about 
the vulnerability of God's people and God's salvation plan. Now we learn a bit later on as we go through this week by week, we're going to see Nehemiah is actually a very courageous and very brave leader. He does some, in God's power, does some seemingly impossible things. And, um, but at this point here, we see a different side to Nehemiah. He seems to be the kind of person that when he gets bad news, you know, he needs a box of Kleenex, a comfy blanket, and his favorite episode of This Is Us. And then he pour, he's pouring his heart out to God. But he's zealous, isn't he? He's zealous for God's purposes, for God's ways. He, it, this shows us that he seems to care more about God's glory and God's purposes than anything else. He's zealous on fire for God. We don't know his backstory. We're not told the backstory that, you know, Marvel hasn't made the prequel yet for that. I'm sure there's some rumor sites somewhere that are predicting that Disney Plus is working on it. Nehemiah Kenobi coming soon, something like that. I'm sure it's in the works. But we don't know his backstory. But what we do know is we do know that he repents. He says, I and my father's house, we've also sinned against you. And so we know he hasn't always felt this way. Nehemiah hasn't always felt zealous and passionate for God's purposes. He hasn't always felt excited about these things. In fact, he'd been walking in some terrible ways and not been trusting God, not been following the ways and the, the commands of Moses that God had given to Moses. And so we don't quite have his backstory. We don't know how he got to this point. But now we see that he's a man of prayer and fasting. He's a man of the word. He, he actually uses Bible verses in his prayer to, to Moses, uh, to, to God, quoting from Moses. He's not praying to Moses. That was a, a mistake. I didn't mean to say that. So we, 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 now, we now see this. We see a man broken over his own sin, over the, the sin of his own, own people, and he's, he's a man of conviction, a man of deep, deep conviction. So something has changed here for Nehemiah. Something has deeply changed for him. We don't, we don't know exactly how it changed because we don't have the backstory, but we have some clues that we can look to. So even though we don't have the, the specifics, we see that he is a man of prayer now. He's responding in this radical way. He is a man of the word responding in this way. And he's going to be a man of action, actually, with great faith, taking bold action, risky action, to secure God's people and God's salvation plan. And so what we learn from this is, in the story of Nehemiah, one of the big lessons, one of the opening lessons that we can learn as God's people today is we can look at this and say, the things that make us sad, the things that move us, the things that get this kind of reaction out of us, that, that bring the, the Kleenex moments to us, reveal to us what we love or idolize the most. They reveal to us what we love or idolize the most. Now, we can be sad and moved and even depressed about, about good things, but also about things that don't really matter. And so we need to ask ourselves the question. And we, we can't ignore the dark, negative feelings we have. We, we, to be emotionally healthy, we have to embrace them and face them and work through them. We can't just ignore them. They're always going to be there. But we need to ask ourselves a question. Because sadness... And sorrow and weeping is a barometer of the state of our heart and what we care about most. God uses it as a sign to us to reveal to us where we're at and how much we trust and believe in God. And so we need to ask ourselves, what things move us? What things make, we need to think back to 
to things that anger us or make us sad or make us weep or have this kind of really strong response, what are those things? Because they can be good things. It could be, hey, we're broken over our sin, the mistakes we've made, the you know, injustice has happened, things like that. You know, hey, those are good things to be sad about, to be broken over. But we need to ask, well, are there other things? Is it more that, well, I'm sad because things aren't going my way? I'm broken because I'm comparing my life to other people's life, or I thought I'd be somewhere else by now. Things haven't worked out the way I'd hope. I've had setbacks, or really longing for this thing or wanting this thing, and that's what I'm sad about. So we can have kingdom motivations to be moved like this, but also we can have very self-centered and selfish motives. But the good news is, if they're not quite the right motives, the good news is, and we see it in the story of Nehemiah, God can change us. God can change my heart, and He can change your heart. He does it all the time. He does it all the time. We see it in the, in the story of Nehemiah. It takes time. It takes time to do it. But our heart becomes more affectionate towards whatever we feed it, which is why I'm always wanting more cheeseburgers, which is not a helpful thing to think about before prayer and fasting, but we'll do prayer and feasting next time. But this time we're doing prayer and fasting. This time it's prayer and feasting. But the heart becomes more affectionate towards whatever it feeds itself. Whatever we focus on, whatever we give ourselves to, our hearts move more and more towards it. So we see Nehemiah, he's a man who has been feeding himself on God's Word. Something changed. At some point, he started memorizing Scripture because in his prayer, he's just pouring out Scripture. At some point, he started learning God's ways. Now he's praying and fasting. He's taking it seriously. He's like, I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to do the things that are the things I know I should do, but I haven't really been doing. I've been kind of sinning against God, me and my father's house and the whole nation in rebellion to God, there's been a change in Nehemiah. God changed him. God did a great, deep work in him. And you only know the practices, the spiritual practices, the getting in God's Word, absorbing God's Word, prayer and fasting, these different things, worship, whatever it might be, pursuing God, you only know how deep they've gone when you actually have a Nehemiah moment. When you have a Nehemiah moment. Because it's our knee-jerk reactions that reveal where our hearts are at. So you've got to pay attention to your knee-jerk reactions. How do I react to things? What does it reveal about where I'm at? Nehemiah's, excuse me, Nehemiah's knee-jerk reaction is he spends this weeping and crying before the Lord, mourning before the Lord about the crisis that the God's people are in, this remnant, this small remnant that is now vulnerable, that might be wiped out. He's moved over it. What we shouldn't do with any hero in the Bible, with any hero of faith in the Bible, any person in Scripture, we shouldn't, and especially with Nehemiah, we shouldn't see them like the first square in a comic book strip where a hero tends to appear perfectly brave, strong, ready to go, like they've got no problems. They've had nothing in their past to they've had to overcome. They just, they just appear brave and strong and ready, and all their problems are going to be solved very quickly. That's the wrong way to view this. We, we actually have to see that the hero ends up being the hero because they have lived over a prolonged period of time a particular way that has produced this response within them. Heroes are made over decades, not over days. 
Aquaman. Only recently got a movie. And he, was, he first appeared, I think, in 1941. It takes a lot. Hey, this hero gig takes a long time. Takes a long time. As we absorb God's word, as we feed ourselves on God's word, as we follow God's ways, we, we pray, we fast, we, we worship Almighty God, it has an effect on us. It changes us. It transforms us over time. And then we have our Nehemiah moments, um, which are the barometers to test how deep has my heart changed? How much have I changed towards God? I want to encourage us as we go through Nehemiah, this is going to be like one big giant Bible study for our church, all right? We're going to be digging into these scriptures, these passages, going through this bit by bit, uncovering it, looking at God's word, looking at God's truth. And if you're somebody who's like, I don't really get the Bible, or I'm confused about certain parts of it, or I'm not that tight with Jesus yet, or I'm just not sure where I'm at with these things, you're in the perfect place. You're in the perfect place. This is your Nehemiah moment. Say, I want to go on that long journey so that when I, when I do have those times of testing, I can respond and with that heroic faith that God builds in people to stand at the point where I'm tested and I need to stand, need to stand strong for God. Because sometimes pressure comes and we don't stand. We saw that over the last two years, right? Pressure came and things crumbled in some of our lives and people that we know and love. So Nehemiah responds, he's got this building project he's got to do. He's, this is what's going to happen. We're going to read more about this in chapter two. It's like now he's going to have to actually repair the city gates, repair the walls. He's going to have to fortify God's people. And he's going to have to get this thing rolling. And we actually see some parallels here for our church. We see some parallels here for us that we too have a building project that God is calling us to. We started, kicked it off today. Good timing. This was not planned, by the way, that we would start Tangible Community. Also doing Nehemiah. Just God has a great way of like working things out, you know. It's like he's I try and plan stuff, and then God has a better plan a lot of times. So this is, this is, from my perspective, this is random, but from God's perspective, it's not. It's all planned out. So we have, we have some parallels here. We are in a time of crisis in our culture, lots of division in our culture. God's people themselves, before they were exiled, they were split. They were a kingdom that was torn apart, split in two. Judah and Jerusalem were a divided nation, two power centers struggling for control. It was part of the reason that God actually exiled them and conquered them with foreign nations. We see in our time, we see we're in a culture, we're in a crisis, we're more and more divided. And even, that's even true in the church in general, where there is a great rejection of God's word and God, God's ways. And so by God's grace and by his hand, he has called us to be his people to stand as a lighthouse in this time, in this place, to stand up, to rise up, to shine the light of his gospel. And we too have a building project like Nehemiah does. And we want to, we've got this unique call that God's called us to, that we want to multiply our ministry in this place. We want to include our neighborhood and our city, bring people in their needs that need to be met in this place, in this city. And God's calling us to something that, in my mind, oftentimes feels impossible, feels completely impossible, but actually, what Nehemiah faced was actually impossible, way more impossible. What we face is nothing. So the parallels, I just got to be clear, it's not a direct parallel. Walls of, rebuilding walls of Jerusalem, us buying a building, us reaching the city, not exact parallels, but there are lessons, there are things we can learn and things that we can grow in. 
But God has a heart for this place, and God wants to break our heart for the lost people that are around us. It's so easy to be focused on just our immediate needs or just trying to get through to the next day or I'm working on my five-year plan or I've got this. God has a special calling and a special grace on our church to stand up, to shine the light, to be not just a faithful presence, but to be an effective witness, to be an effective witness in this place to draw more and more people into God's family, to include them in God's purposes. When we first moved into this building at the beginning of 2019, I met with the principal of Sen High School and was asking her, you know, what needs are there? What ways can our church serve? And she talked about, well, maybe this facility you have, you know, maybe it could be used for um, students, for study space, for extracurricular activities. I also met with the alderman of the area and said, you know, what needs are there? And he talked about youth activities and different programs to engage youth in the area. And uh, so those are, I don't know if those are things we'll do or those things we'll be engaged in, but those are needs, kingdom of God needs that are around us that will require dedication, ownership, and leadership for us to engage these things. And I think specifically for us, building ownership that we can maximize, that we can own this entire complex, the whole, all the buildings uh, that are part of this complex, that we can maximize and multiply ministry in this place. An important thing that we really need to do is actually make this facility accessible. It's a big problem, and it's something our family would particularly appreciate uh, help with as well. It's a very selfish uh, uh, mention here, and Finley agrees. And, uh, but think about it. Think about, actually, there's a lot of people in this vicinity who have mobility issues. There's some um, kind of elderly living facilities closer by or people with different mobility issues. And right now, I mean, people in spirit are welcome and, 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 and our hearts are hospitable, but practically people are not welcome like because they cannot physically get access to our building. So there are some challenges, some things ahead of us, that we, some, some obstacles we want to cross in terms of multiplying ministry and including more and more people. Uh, in this space through the ministry that God's called us to. And we can learn from Nehemiah. We can learn from him. We can learn his practices and his ways, his faith. Yes, he responds, there's practical things that we're going to learn because in the end, you know, God's word, God's calling, it's not just abstract ideas. They have to work themselves out in tangible ways. They have to actually be lived out. Nehemiah does that, but he doesn't start there. And this is key for us. He doesn't start there. Where does he start? He starts with fasting. We read it in verse 4. I continued fasting and praying. I continued fasting and praying. What is biblical fasting? Christians, sometimes we talk about, oh, you know, you can fast other things. You can fast, uh, you know, TV or social media or YouTube or whatever it is. I just want to say that's not biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is giving up food. That's what it is. There's a few ways you can do it. There's a Daniel fast. There's You can drink Jews sometimes, if you're doing a long fast, Jesus did a 40-day fast. I just got to tell you, it's not fun. No one enjoys it. I mean, there are benefits to it. There are, there are, it's profound and powerful. Like, God does amazing things through it. Like, God hears our prayers. But it, it, it's not supposed to be fun. We're supposed to be more dependent on God. But i got to be frank about this. Like Cole mentioned, Americans. Americans, I think we might literally be the worst people in history at fasting. Instead of fasting food, we created fast food. 
right? Think about breakfast. Break fast. What a con. What were we doing just before we had breakfast? We were sleeping. Sleeping is not fasting. Even when we do fast, it's not biblical fasting, it's intermittent fasting. We'll fast for blood tests, for surgeries, but when it comes to fasting for the God of the universe, you know, sometimes it's just a little bit too much of an inconvenience for us. But we're Americans, so we can do this because, frankly, we're all, you know, we're a little fat. And so we, we have extra food stored in our bodies. So if anyone can fast, it's us. If anyone can miss it, now we don't do it for aesthetic reasons. We do it for spiritual reasons. We do it because we want to put God in first place because we want to say, God, I'm desperate for you. I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty for you. I want, I want to seek you and seek a breakthrough. Prayer and fasting. Well, fasting is a way to supercharge our prayers. This handout that you received when you came in, this, if you didn't get a chance to read this yet, please, please read this. It's, as you can see, very short. But this will give you a really good overview of what it means to fast. I understand there are some medical reasons why people can't fast. If you're pregnant or other things like that, there are reasons to not fast. But for most of us, we can skip a meal or a day or even longer, fasting even for a couple of days, a few days, to supercharge our prayers. Prayer and fasting tomorrow night. I'll be here. I'm pretty sure hopefully Adam and Akemeni will also be here. So there'll be three of us. We'll have a great time if it's just us. But it's not going to be just us because God is calling our church to a moment, a Nehemiah moment, to say, I want to give up my conveniences. I want to give up my comforts. I want to put God in first place and seek God. I want to, I'm going to and if, listen, if you can't fast for whatever reason, still show up because it's optional. It's encouraged, but it's optional. But we're going to pray. We're going to be worshiping together. We're going to have prayer points. We're going to be praying for Ukraine. We're praying for a breakthrough there. Praying for our work with Chicagoland Prison Outreach. We're going to be, I'm going to be speaking a blessing over everyone present. There's a, a big biblical precedent for that of receiving blessings from God. And we're going to be engaging in that and praying for each other and seeking God together. As a church, we've got to do this. This is the example of Nehemiah. The reason we read and study the Bible is because we believe that the Bible has authority in our lives because it comes from God. And you only know how much authority it has if you actually follow it, if you actually say, oh, that's what it says to do, and then you actually go and do it. So I just want to urge us, please, if you're able to make it tomorrow night at 7, we'll be in the lobby, 7 o'clock tomorrow night. We'll be praying and fasting and seeking God. We'll be seeking God together. We see, the next thing we see in Nehemiah's response to is praying and fasting, and then we see praise. We see praise. So in verse 5, in verse 5, he says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. One of the great things about prayer, one of the things that makes our prayers so special is when we start with this idea of how great God is. Now, when we're starting with how great God is, we're not just stroking God's insecure ego. That's not what's happening. Some people look at Christianity and think, man, God must be insecure. He just demands all this worship. Let me explain how this works. We delight in God because God is the ultimate good. Let me, let me, let me illustrate it this way. 
Ladies, let's say you meet Ricky Gervais, the comedian, the well-known actor and comedian. Let's say you meet Ricky Gervais. And you be like, you might feel like, oh, I'm meeting a celebrity, a famous person, and you might make he's a funny guy, so he might make you laugh a little bit, and you might feel like, oh, this is very special to meet somebody well known like this. Let's say you met uh, Jimmy Fallon, also a funny guy, little cuter though, a little bit cuter. You might you might you might also feel like, wow, I'm meeting a celebrity, like this guy's funny, making me laugh. But maybe you might you know also think well, he's kind of cute too. Now let's imagine that you meet Chris Hemsworth, also a very funny person, actor. You might feel, I don't know, you'd be doting or depends who, what your type is, but yeah, he's a pretty hunky guy, right? Chris Hemsworth, Thor. What's the point I'm making? The more glorious something is, the more you delight in it. The more glorious something is, the more you delight in it. I think I made the point. I think you get the point. Okay. Maybe that was a bad illustration. I don't know. We'll, we'll go with it. We'll go with it. It's too late. It's in the books. We got it in there. You'll never forget that one. Remember that time Matt talked about those? Yeah. God is the most glorious the greatest, most beautiful, most magnificent, kindest, most generous, holy and righteous, transcendent. We, it is immoral not to, not to delight ourselves in Him more than anything else. And so we start with praise. We start with that place of praise. I want to seek God and magnify Him and worship Him. That's what we're going to be doing tomorrow night, starting in that place. Nehemiah shows us the way. We also see in this verse, we see Nehemiah crying out for God to pay him attention. <coughs> Excuse me. A little bit of a chest thing going on there. Verse 6. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Now, one of the mistakes, one of the abuses sometimes of Scripture is that people will create these funky formulas. If you pray just this way, God has to answer your prayer. It's kind of strong-arming God into answering prayers. Uh, people, some, I've heard people do this before. But like, if you just thank God that he's already done it, then he has to do it. Like, it doesn't, I don't think it works that way. So don't read this as a formula, but this is a helpful example for us that we can follow. To say, God, I really want you to hear this one. This prayer, I mean, all my prayers are important because I'm praying them, but this one's like, it's, it's really extra important, God. Would you give me your full attention? Would you put your eyes on this? Because right now I'm not feeling seen, not feeling heard. I'm, I really want you to hear this and see this and answer this prayer. That's a healthy, good example that we have of engaging God in prayer. Then the next thing we see is we see confession. We see confession. So again, the last second part of, uh, last part of verse 6 there, it says, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, whenever we have, when you have group, now the idea of group confession, we have to be careful with this idea, the idea of group confession. There's, there, there can be a time and a place for this. But just remember that time and that place is never, never, ever Thanksgiving dinner. It's never the time and the place to do this. 
Notice that this is private. Nehemiah is doing this by himself, behind closed doors. There are no verses in the Bible that tell us to do this. And there's only other one book in the Bible that this actually happens in. It happens in the book of Daniel. Daniel does something similar. So we have to be cautious, we have to be careful about building a formula around group confession. Of course, if we're confessing sins, we're all confessing individual sins. But something interesting happens here. But we have to be careful also because we don't want to falsely assume and accuse people of sins they haven't committed. That's one of the problems sometimes with group confessions of sins. It's like, oh, haven't we all done this? It's like, well, actually, no, not everyone struggles with all sins. So we have to be careful we don't put those on on people at different times. We have to remember that God's people, the ancient nation of Israel, were a covenant people. They had a particular, special group accountability that God had made with them through his covenants, through his covenant that he made with them, that no other nation has ever been given or will be given. So we we cannot forget that. What we see with Nehemiah is he's confessing the sins of the nation, but it's really interesting. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned in this way. We're complicit in the same sin. We're a part of this. Contrast that with somebody like Moses. Moses, when he comes down from receiving the Ten Commandments and he comes down to the people and they've made the golden calf, what does he say to them? He doesn't say, well, let's all just do some group repentance here because I'm sure I'm complicit somehow. He says, you people did this evil thing. So we have to be careful about this. How easy would it be for Nehemiah to blame all other people or blame the Babylonians? I mean, they conquered them. Blame the Persians. They conquered them. Blame King Artaxerxes. He's, he's the head of an oppressive system, an oppressive structure. Blame them. Blame him. Blame everybody. But Nehemiah instead, what does he do? He's self-reflective. He's own, he, he realizes God's in control. The reason that we are suffering, the reason that we're in exile We can't blame them. I can't be focused on other people's faults. It's our fault. Me, my household, my people, we did this. In our prayers, we should not focus on those who we are angry at or those we think of. We've got to think of, we've got to get our house in order. God, this is is my sin. And if I'm complicit in the, the broader sins, God, then this is our sin together. We see that. That's an example to us. The other thing we see Here in verse 8, we see Nehemiah engaging in what we could call scriptural prayer, where he's praying scripture to God. So verse 8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's from Deuteronomy. That recently came up in my Old Testament reading, actually. And I was like, oh, there it is right there. It's always fun when you're reading for the Bible and you connect those dots together sometimes. It's really powerful to me when my kids come to me and they say, Dad, Remember when you said this? Now, it, and you know, I gave them my word on something. I said they could do it, or I said I would do it. Or I'm like, all right, that's that's powerful. I need yes, I'll, I'll do that. I said I would. It always backfires. You know, it sometimes backfires if they if they say I promised something that I didn't. I'm like uh, now I'm less likely to want to do it. The other problem is is that when you get to 42, sometimes you can't remember what you promised. So that's that's another problem to contend with. It's like, did I say that? I'm not I'm not sure. You you confuse me. But we see this idea of praying Scripture 
to God, reminding God of his promises. This is, again, not an exact formula to follow, but a healthy example for us to engage in. That if God has made promises, those are things he wants to deliver on. Those are his will. We can actually increase our batting average as it relates to answer prayers if we just focus on the things that God says he already wants to do. It's, a great, it's not a cheat. It's like totally legit. You can get like, I've got 100% score in answer prayers because I just basically pray whatever God said he's going to do anyway. And so we can get a hold of Scripture, get a hold of, there's many promises throughout the Word that we can learn, that we can put into our hearts and we can pour out to prayer to God. God, you promised. Didn't you say? Wouldn't you do this? Aren't you this way? Isn't this your character? Pouring them out to God. I don't know how it works. We can't strong arm God. We can't make God do things. But somehow God encourages us to pray and encourages us to praise promises. And it seems like God responds to that. I think God responds to that. Don't you think God, God seems to respond to that? And we're encouraged to do that. The other thing we learn here from Nehemiah is we learn to be specific in prayer. So this last verse, verse 11, he says, Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now when he says this man, he's talking about King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah already has something specific in mind. So he's not just praying generic prayers of help. God, get me out of this mess. Get us out of this mess. Do something. God, you do something. Nehemiah has something in his mind that he wants to do. He wants to approach the king, and we're going to look at this next week, for provision and for permission to go and rebuild the gates and the walls of Jerusalem. But he's got this plan. I'm going to go to the king. This is a very dangerous thing to do. It could be misinterpreted as disloyalty to the king because he's a cupbearer to the king. He's employed as, as a part of this guy's kingdom. And any misstep, you know what happens with kings, right? You, you screw up, something goes wrong, you know, you're gone. So this is very dangerous, so he's praying, and he's praying very specifically, God, I'm going to talk to this person on this day, and this is what I need. I need favor from this person. For us, we've got to learn to pray specific prayers, whether it's personally or corporately together. God, we want, we need these resources. We need, we, we, we need, we need help for this. We need a leader for this. We need, we need, we need somebody to do this. We go, God, this is what we need. God, would you answer these prayers? We have permission in the scripture to do that. In the book of Nehemiah, we see, some of the, we see some of the biggest themes of the Bible coming through. We see that, God, that, that God's people always fail God's standards. And we can all raise our hands and say, yep, count me in on that. We always seem to fail God's standards. But what we see through that is we still see God's grace, God's unconditional grace. We see the heart of God coming through to still work through us and use us and save us even in our inability to properly follow God's ways and God's standards. We see, this we see this distinction in the Scripture, especially in the story of Nehemiah, that the blessings we receive, being in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and all the, all the things built upon the salvation that we receive, that those things are contingent upon our willingness to follow and obey and trust God. Those things are contingent. Those blessings are depend on our faithfulness to God's promise. But what we see, we see the, the gift of salvation in the first place. So going all the way back to them being rescued from Egypt, that's a physical, that's historical event that depicts our spiritual salvation in God. That is by His sheer, unconditional, unmerited grace given to us, and it's a promise forever. Understand that distinction. 
that if you're a child of God, you're a son or daughter of God, your identity in God can never be taken from you. Jesus said, nothing can pluck them out of my hands. Jesus said it. Nothing can take us out of his hands. We're safe and secure in him forever. We can forfeit the promises and the blessings and the things that build on top of that. We can lose that. And that happens all the time in Scripture. We see Nehemiah is a giant story of that, of all that God's people lost. They were still, look, you're still God's child, even if you're not a great child. You understand what I mean? We still have that identity. We're still saved by God's unconditional grace. Today, let's, let's return to God. This is the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is bringing, he's not, it's not just a building project. Yes, it is. That's the practical outworking of it. But the heart of it is to say, I want to return that God's in first place. That I'm, I'm trusting in him more than ever. I'm following his ways and, and absorbing his word more and more. My heart is being shaped more and more for God so that my knee-jerk reactions, how I respond to the crises of my time, it's Godward. It's centered on him and, and who he is and desperate for his purposes to be fulfilled in our day and our age. We need to respond to Jesus. We need to worship and sing to Jesus. Let's respond today. How can you respond? Maybe you need to come into God's family for the first time. Maybe you need to pray about what you're going to give in a special offering. Maybe you want to get involved in a small group or serving at Trinity. Whatever step it is you want to take, you can respond on that Connect card that Cole talked about. You can text the word ENJOY to 94,000.